The God of Atheists, Chapter 15, Stephen Speaks of Spy Games It was a drizzly, slightly gusty spring morning, and most of the kids went to the cafeteria for hot chocolate and doughnuts. Stephen and a few other hardy souls went outside. When Alice and Sarah finished waterproofing themselves, they went out and watched him. He was hanging by his knees under a curved red ladder in the shape of a rainbow, reaching back for his heels. "'He's mad,' said Sarah. "'We shouldn't trust ourselves to him.' "'Stephen,' called Alice. He leaned forward, catching the bar, and sat on top. "'Yo!' he cried. "'How's it going, home girls? I'm sorry about yesterday,' he added to Sarah. "'I really am.' "'What do you do about your dad?' asked Alice." "'Come on up if we're going to have a powwow,' he said, gesturing at the curved red bars. They came up after a few moments, then the three of them sat on cold, wet bars under the white sky. Stephen smiled. His forehead glistened. "'I didn't—I'm uh, I'm not sure I got the question there.' Sarah squinted and wiped her eyes. "'I always forget it can be bright without the sun.' "'We wandered,' said Alice. "'What you do about your dad?' "'Oh, that he's unhappy?' asked Stephen, leaning forward and tightening a lace. "'Nothing.' "'Nothing yet?' asked Sarah. "'Or like nothing ever?' "'Don't know. I'm gathering facts.' Alice frowned. "'Not clear.' "'Well, I'm not trying to show off, but I've read enough to know that if you're a good person you're supposed to be happy. That's not the same as famous or rich or pretty. Not, you know, successful.' So if that's true, and tons of people say it is, then my dad is unhappy because he's not a good person. Right, said Sarah, taking a deep breath and shuddering. Okay, cold. So I don't know if he's not good, or if what people say is wrong, or if it's something else. Alice rocked slightly. But how, what do you do? Stephen grinned, and it was quite a beautiful smile. It was so elementally free. I spy. Sarah's eyes widened. You what? He nodded. I spy, sure, I have to. No one tells me. Okay, that's a little creep-o-rama, interrupted Alice, getting up unsteadily. Come on, Sarah. Wait a moment, cried Stephen. What, what if they're wrong? The girls paused. He spread his hands, his throat thick with innocent passion. They're all telling us, you know, what's good and bad, right and wrong. Alice turned, her eyes fierce. What if you're wrong? Stephen spread his hands. Then no harm, no foul. I'm just taking notes. It's not creepy. I'm just curious. Sarah sat down again. Notes? Stephen groped around his neck, pulling out a little notebook on a string. Yeah, you know, just like... He flipped open a page... Okay, like yesterday. My dad says to my mom, no one comes to see me at my office. And my mom says, who would? You drone on and on when you lecture. And I thought that was kind of mean, you know? I think good people are sort of... You'll laugh, but I think they're sort of tender. He gazed at his pages, turning a few. But I don't... Maybe I'm missing something. Alice glanced at him. Why don't you just ask them? "'I did! I did!' said Stephen, his cheeks reddening suddenly. "'I do, but I never get anywhere. They're always in a rush. 
or something's on TV or, or people are coming over and, and what they say, I have a million questions. They give me maybe four, five, max. They say things will make sense when I grow up, but I can't wait until then. So I said, okay, I can't grow up yet, but I can do the next best thing. I can watch grown-ups, you know, see what they do. So you spy, said Alice. I take notes. I'm looking for, I mean... Maybe my dad is unhappy because he's so wise, you know, like a sad old lion. He took a deep, sudden breath. But I don't think so. No, ah, Sarah, what do you think? I don't know yet. Stephen gazed down at his little notebook. It's very confusing. There was a pause. Thunder rumbled in the distance. A bell rang in the school. Better get back, said Sarah. Okay, said Stephen. He tucked his notebook back into his shirt, then turned and leapt at the shimmy-pole, turning once, then sliding down. Nice, grinned Alice, clambering down awkwardly. As they trudged back to school, Stephen suddenly turned around and beamed his magnificent grin again. You know, he cried, you could help. Alice laughed. I don't think your parents are that interesting. No, Alice, said Sarah softly, her eyes cast down. No. He means ours. Chapter 16. Gordon Goes to University When Gordon went to university, he was greatly shocked. To some degree, he believed that he might find his hidden tribe there, but it did not take him long to find out that most people there had almost no interest in knowledge itself. This was quite confusing, but should have been quite predictable. University was composed of, say, the top 20% of high school students, and it wasn't as if Gordon had felt at one with 20% of his high school classmates. About two weeks into his first semester, he met Rudy Fisher, a.k.a. the Babblefish. Gordon was at the student pub, a low room with scarred wooden tables, psychedelic beer signs, retro music, and hypnotically slow ceiling fans. He was sitting alone, reading the same page over and over while checking out the women, when the Babblefish made his entrance. There are certain kinds of charisma which are natural forces unto themselves. Even as an infant, Rudy used to draw nurses to his crib. He had a way of sucking his own feet that melted even the staunchest, most Scottish heart. He was an intently watchful baby, and a glimpse of his later talent could be seen in the manner of his feeding. Within three months of being born, he was attempting to feed half-mulched food back to his mother. Rudy was beloved in school in a manner hard to describe. He was short, red-haired, thick-waisted, heavily freckled, and narrow of nose. He was not handsome or distinguished physically or talented athletically or musical in any way. However, he possessed a gift for listening, which was like mother's milk to the lost tribes of ignored youths around him. He had a way of looking at people which seemed to draw deep secrets from them, like a Zen angler reeling in prehistoric fish. He listened with such an ease of concentration that sometimes, talking to him, people actually heard themselves, often for the first time in years. People could not be habitual around Rudy. There was no point trying to impress him or lie to him. He did not object, but did not react, either. Like most excellent listeners, he had no strong beliefs of his own. This was one of the reasons he listened so well. "'Tell me everything,' his eyes said. "'We shall merely be curious about the human.' Last but not least, he was a languish savant. 
he was able to synthesize thoughts in a startling manner. He had no really creative thoughts of his own, but he was able to turn the unfocused searchlights of others into tight lasers. People became more themselves when interacting with him, for better and worse. Rudy was also a bit of a blurter. He did not have any real sense of the need for secrecy, or could not be bothered keeping track of alliances, and so caused great problems in tenuous relationships. He was also blunt, and would respond to the previous sentence by saying that he did not cause problems, but rather exposed them, in the same way that a doctor does not create an illness by diagnosing it. Bluntness is often associated with a kind of social retardation, but that only occurs when a person feels guilty for blurting. Rudy felt no such guilt, and was perfectly composed in the face of sudden revealing storms. Lying and keeping secrets was just too complicated for him. He was also a maniac for simplification, which made people want his advice and often hate receiving it. In his view, relationships became complicated simply because everyone made excuses for everyone else's behavior. It's hard enough to get to know someone else as they are, he would say. Add your fantasies and all hope is lost. Even without his special gift, Rudy was charismatic and popular. What made him into a campus legend, though, was that he was a babblefish. Now, a babblefish is a person with the ability to translate normal English to postmodernism and back on the fly. This is a great party trick, of course, and Rudy could be most entertaining in the center of a circle of undergraduates, tossing him challenges from the textbooks in their hands. However, his true genius was his ability to uncover perfect thesis topics. Rudy was, without a doubt, the greatest thesis advisor the university had ever known. It is guessed that about 80% of his food intake and almost all of his CD collection came from students grateful for his uncanny expertise in guiding them towards the right topics. Abstract topics, especially from the young, are almost always generated by unresolved emotional issues. Thus, finding a really juicy thesis topic, especially for undergraduate students, is usually more psychology than philosophy. Rudy's ability to listen was unparalleled, and this, combined with his ability to wield the pomo boomerang to translate to and fro, gave him the special gift of thesis advising. In the world of academia, thesis topics are no small problem. A thesis is an idea or argument you have to live with for years, and also represents the culmination of many years of preparation. You can't undo it, you can't go back, you can't change your mind halfway through. It can either be the best or the worst time you can ever have. The problem is, which topic to choose? Of course, faculty are supposed to help with that, but they have too many competing self-interests to be objective. A professor working on a book might want a student to research something which serves his larger interest, or he may have a fetish for a particular topic or idea, or he may know very little about the student's real interests or potential. And, of course, there are many other barriers to encouraging a student's idea. It may contradict the professor's own work, or a friend's, or a colleague's, or someone in the field. Well, anyone, really. It may be unsupported by anything else in the literature, and so have to be judged on its own merits. <gasps> it may be outside his area of expertise, and require a lot of additional research to mark accurately. It may be politically incorrect, or be against the prevailing winds in any way. It may not oppose colonialism, 
or rail against the endless subjugation of women, it may be right-wing, or positive about the free market in any way, or about men, especially white men. For those in women's studies, thesis topics were generally one or more of the following categories. This woman was greater than her male contemporaries, but was ignored anyway. History thinks men did all the work, but really it was women. This brave Saint S. sacrificed everything to advance the noble female cause. Everything conspired to remove choice from this group of women. These women are oppressed because they care about their children much more than their husbands do. These women banded together to fight injustice. When there were no loans, these women started a bank in their backyard. These women started their own welfare program on returned pop bottles. Men are greedy capitalist dogs. Women really care about preserving the environment. These men don't want women to learn anything. Women are impregnated to keep them down. For men, especially white men, the choices were much more limited. They could not write about women or minorities or the poor or other religions. Similarly, they could not claim that anything they wrote was actually true or deal with ideas other than various kinds of watered-down socialism which claimed to explain the world. Faced with this stark lack of choice, most of the men tended to hunker down in some obscure corner of academic knowledge, hoping to become experts as a consequence of others' indifference to their own specialization. But how to find a truly personal nook? That was a significant problem. It had to be something that tied into some personal obsession which allowed the student to ignore the fact that she was toiling for years, say, tracking sheep movements in some demons in southern France in the exciting decade of the 1240s. Rudy called his guidance obsession therapy in that he did not seek to liberate a student from his obsessions, but rather use them to blind him to the futility of what he was doing. His practice had started as a simple dorm-room exercise, just listening and talking, but word had spread quickly that there was a great wisdom in the land, and the needy came. Soon it became a public event. Rudy would sit in the student pub in a booth reserved for him alone, and supplicants would come to speak with him. Those who made the Babelfish pilgrimage were often asked to reveal strikingly personal information, and would twist awkwardly on the seat of his wooden pew, privacy warring with the desire for his insight. Rudy would sit across from them, eating endless pretzels and asking odd but penetrating questions. You're an only child? The student, in this case a young woman with greenish hair and a pierced eyebrow, would blink. No, I have two brothers. Sisters? No. Mother's occupation? Bookstore. She, she worked there. Father? No father. Died? Left contact? Very little. Mother remarried? No. Dated? Yes. Longest relationship? Hers or mine? Hers. Not more than a few months. Favorite movie? Not the one you have to impress people. Sid and Nancy? Favorite novel? Uh, Glamorama. If you could not be in university, what would you be doing? Traveling. Not counting traveling. I, 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 I don't know. Last paying job? Waitress. Recurring dreams of being chased? Yes. How many times a night do you wake up? Probably t twice. For how long? Ten to twenty minutes. Drug use? Just recreational, a little. Did you have access to a cottage growing up? No. Did you have a car in high school? No. Allowance? Ten dollars a week. Do you believe that your parents are moral? Both of them? Both. My mother? Gosh, I don't know. I, I suppose so. I, I don't think... I, I don't know enough about my father. 
Did you ever shoplift? J just sunglasses, snacks, kid stuff. Caught? No, I just got bored by it. South America. Gasps around the booth. The moment had arrived. Sorry? South America. The banana trade, I think. Indigenous exploitation. 18th century. A title than a colon with more details. I don't know Spanish. Rudy leaned forward. Learn it. Rudy never disclosed his methods. He probably could not have, since he followed instinct alone. Of course, the exploitation of helpless dependence by a phallocentric banana company in the distant past would trigger primal infant memories in the woman, and her obsessions about male exploitation and identification with the peasants, combined with her amoral anger, could produce a thesis possessing all the strange coherence of emotional trauma masquerading as intellectual activity. An A for sure, and no sense of time passing as she worked. He had done it again. Rudy's other great power, and this was the core of being a babblefish, was to translate postmodernism, POMO, into pigdin, plain English. This was of great value to graduate students who had wandered so far into the gassy realms of self-referential language that they no longer had any idea what they were actually saying. These students would come to Rudy, again bringing gifts, and Rudy would downshift their language from Pomo to Pigden, and the ideas would be scrutinized for any trace of originality. Assuming none were found, he would upshift their language back into Pomo, and they would depart content. Gifted with this power, Rudy also held court for the wording of thesis proposals. The purpose was to bring a selection of the professor's papers. These would then be downshifted into Pigton, scrutinized, and then a Pigton statement would be written, which agreed with the professor's opinions, which Rudy would then upshift into Pomo. And what was his own work like? Well, he was a good teacher's assistant and quite an entertaining lecturer. He taught modern American history and gave a good Nixon. He also enlivened his courses by sprinkling enough oblique references to the falsity and humor of Pomo language that students found themselves electrified, excited, as if opening their eyes to their first glimpse of willing flesh. Rudy was working on a dissertation about the spread of new kinds of water wheels throughout medieval England. He was quite aware that his interest in technology for gaining power out of a formless liquid was not unrelated to his own status as a babblefish, but what was the point of pursuing that? The point was to get it done and get tenure. He did not pretend, either to himself or his thesis advisor, that his work would have any use other than to bore people away from reading it and so ensure his unquestioned mastery of a tiny domain. When Gordon first met the babblefish, a sort of electric current passed between them, and they knew that they would be friends for life, because they were both committed to exploration. The babblefish to language, Gordon to ideas. The capacity and desire to go behind the Oz curtain of habitual thoughts is so rare that those who possess it can almost sense each other through thick lead. Gordon heard the word babblefish racing around the room, and his curiosity was immediately piqued. He could not get very close, but leaned against a chair and listened as the babblefish dispensed his strange and penetrating advice to a succession of rapt listeners. There is something about this advice. Most of it was academically related, but occasionally not. At about the fourth student, a young man prematurely balding, Gordon heard the following. B.F., I am obsessed with Freddie Mercury. 
whispered the young man, ducking his head and swallowing repeatedly. Rudy found. Speak up, the, the singer for Queen? The boy's eyes gleamed. You would not believe the voice this man had. He could sing anything so beautifully. Cool cat off hot space, pure, perfect falsetto. See what a fool I've been off live at the beeb, he growls. My dog ain't too hungry, like the best blues singer you ever heard. Ragtime, country, scat, gospel, you've got to help me. I can't stop listening to him or thinking about his music. Even his solo stuff? Yes, Barcelona, the great pretender, Mr. Bad Guy. Rudy paused. You have the box set? Of course, even the outtakes from Barcelona are great. It has the version of Who Wants to Live Forever off Highlander where, Highlander, where he sings the first verse, not Brian. The boy paused. Only Yellow Breezes sort of sucks. When did this start? He shook his head. I was tree-planting, had only a few tapes. When exactly? For four years ago. One was a day at the races. I mean, don't get me wrong, I liked Queen when I was young. Sure, I had the greatest hits, the game, but I'm out in the middle of nowhere. A day at the races is playing and Tio Toriati comes on. A good vocal performance, the silvery tone at the beginning especially, but nothing extraordinary. And then there's this bit where Freddie goes, Don't turn your heart, we're on, we're on, we're on our way back home. And the second we're on, that goes so high, so clear, so powerful. And I suddenly thought, you know, all at once, I thought, my God, this is a great singer. And then I listened to everything again, everything I had on headphones. It was like a whole new voice. And ever since then, in any music, all I can hear is the tone and clarity and passion of the singer. Rudy nodded. More pretzels met their fate. Do you sing yourself? Sure, a little. I keep bugging them for karaoke here, but not real well. Just enough to know a really great singer when I hear him. Have you ever had this with a female singer? No, not really. Did you go through the sting thing? The young man frowned. The... Oh, yeah, sure, all young singers did. We all broke ourselves over his countertenor. I like Sting's voice, but he's got no falsetto to speak of, and his tone is a little drony, and he doesn't do as many styles. Well, not as well as Freddy. And he's oddly passionate, Liz. Did you know that Freddy was gay? The boy shook his head. No, just when I learned what he died of. Odd, really. It wasn't like he didn't leave a trail. Like the name of the band, say. Yeah. So, you want to do some academic work on Freddy? No, I can't think of a thesis. It's not that. Do you know I dream of him at least once a week? Hmm. Would you have liked to have had his life? Sure. Singing in front of 300,000 South Americans? That must have been a serious trip. I always wanted to sing with him. And what did you feel when he died? Sad. Shocked. Hmm. It's a little outside my area of expertise. You sure you can't come up with something to write about him? Uh, he was pretty unintellectual. Rudy paused. I don't really know how to help you in that, then. Gordon snorted. Oh, come on. The solution is simple. Rudy glanced up. Really? Pushing past the protesting bodies, Gordon sat in the booth next to the student. What's your name? Thomas. Thomas, it's like this. You have a secret talent and you're terrified of fame. The student blinked. What? What do you do in your own time that no one really knows about? Play, play guitar? Electric? Headphones only? Yes. You write songs? Yes. Since you were a kid? Thomas laughed. Y yes, yes, of course. And you want to become famous, but you're terrified of your own shallowness. You're fascinated by Freddie Mercury because he lived out your fantasies, and so you envied him, and also because he died for those fantasies, and so betrayed you. Betrayed? If he were truly happy, would he have been that promiscuous? The boy scowled. He got tested for AIDS in the 80s, was negative, and went out and screwed around even more. That makes you angry. 
Of course. Christ, if rock gods can't be happy, what chance do we have? The boy paused. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. So although you want to be Freddie Mercury, you are troubled by the fact that not even Freddie Mercury wanted to be Freddie Mercury. His life is a riddle you need to solve, and until you solve it, you cannot be a musician. I don't understand that. You want to follow in his footsteps, but his path led off a cliff. You either need to give up your goal or find a new path. Our unconscious often paralyzes us with obsessions to stave off even more self-destructive behavior. You can't give up your goal because you believe you have something to offer, but you are also terrified of fame because it would destroy you just like our dear Freddy boy. He enticed you, then betrayed you. That's, that is always the way of envy. Run to this palace, it says. It's right at the bottom of this cliff. Thomas stared at Gordon. His eyelids twitched. What the fuck? Or you're just gay, smiled Gordon. Fuck you, cried Thomas, squirming up and storming out of the booth, which is quite a tricky combination. There was a pause. Oh, well, said Gordon, sticking out his hand. I'm Gordon. Rudy shook it. Actually, you are the angel of death. Sorry? What the hell were you doing? Helping him. Sure, but if you push the old ladies across the highway, you don't really get the merit badge. I don't know, wait. I've got a better one. Fuck the anesthetic. It'll make him groggy. Let's just soar. You think I was too harsh? No, Don Rickles passing a kidney stone is harsh. What would you have done? Well, got him to a therapist, perhaps. Burned some Sinatra MP3s for him. You know, butch him up a little. Maybe his fantasy is not that fame is so great, but that he's good enough to become famous. You don't know. He's got something new, at any rate. He's going to be in trouble. He already was. Rudy laughed and stuck out his hand. <laughs> what the hell, I'm Rudy. The babblefish. Sure, you haven't come for academic advice. You don't think so? No, you already know what you're going to do, and you'd never take my advice about it. Which would be... Oh, you're dreaming. You have big idea written all over you, like those idea light bulbs, but when this one goes off, the whole city dims. Gordon smiled. I didn't know it was that obvious. Ah, philosophy, I can smell wet gunpowder and a coming war. Gordon laughed delightedly. <laughs> you are a strange oracle. Delphi to me, a direct lineage. Rudy leaned forward, brushing back his red hair. And me? Gordon frowned. Relativist, but there's something not corrupt about it. Rudy kept the back of his head and smiled. Oh, you flatter me. You see hidden patterns, but only subjectively. You wouldn't know a principle if it passed you on the street. Well, unless it owed me money. Which would be a principle, but never mind. So what is your great idea? Gordon paused. I'm still working on it. Rudy snorted. Bullshit! You don't work on a great idea. You just try and pick yourself up after it runs you over. Gordon smiled. I really like you. Yeah, good. Rudy glanced up at the restless waiting throng of students. You not clear off. Nothing more tonight. No, wait. I'll take that pint. You want one? He asked Gordon, who shook his head. And that? Is that blueberry? Okay, that muffin. He took the offerings and set them down before him. I wouldn't call you a babblefish, but rather Elron. Why? Like the Scientologists, you've started your own religion. You think so? You provide cryptic, unverifiable snippets of possible truth in exchange for goods and services. Rudy shook his head. No, I've never done it for services. So you're not a cult. Still. Do you believe in ESP? Only by leprechauns. A young man poked his head around the edge of the booth. Time frame, Babblefish? he asked. 
Rudy smiled and waved him back. This will be a little while. He turned back to Gordon. Some people think they can predict the future when they're just reading body language. A man betrays an affair by the movement of his thumb on his wife's clit. A wife holds her child, who is not her husband's, in a different way. We all know everything all the time. True knowledge is not learning but admitting. It's not sculpture, but archaeology. For internal knowledge, sure, perhaps, but not physics, really. Did you know that the solution to the problem of the carbon atom came in a dream? Einstein felt his way to the theory of relativity and only proved it later. The part of his brain that dealt with spatial reasoning was many times larger than normal. His physics was within him. It was only proved in the world later. Science owes as much to the unconscious as psychology or art. But it has more objective measures. Rudy shrugged. Ah, who knows what the hell is going on with quantum physics. As for psychology, there are wide batteries of psychological tests which measure every aspect of the personality with remarkable accuracy. All right, what about art? Ah, art is the easiest of all. Popularity. Gordon blinked. Popularity? Yes, esteemed member of the elite. So Stephen King is a better writer than Dostoevsky? Define better. Richer, more complex, deeper. So you're saying that a rich dessert is always better than a light dessert. Sorry? Dostoevsky is deeper, we agree on that. Is all deeper art greater than lighter art? Yes. So, to substitute chef for writer, a rich dessert is better than a lighter one? Cheesecake always beats meringue? You can't compare writing to food? Rudy raised his eyebrows. Actually, we're just comparing the concept of better. A better meal is different for someone trying to lose weight than gain it. What better means in this case is more appropriate to the purpose at hand. If you want to relax and be entertained, then certainly Stephen King is a better writer than Dostoevsky. If you want to explore the dangers of grandiosity, crime and punishment is your ticket. So you're saying that because more people want to relax and be entertained, Stephen King is the better writer? Sure. The root of novels is the art of storytelling, and that is a rare and powerful gift. Stephen King is an unbelievably gifted storyteller. Most people are not philosophers. They read at the cottage or on the plane, and they want to explore the human condition about as much as you want to do your taxes. Now, you may not like that they prefer literature that you consider shallow, but you have no right to say that your literature is better just because it suits your preferences. But you're saying that Stephen King's is better because it serves their purposes more. I'm saying that art which serves the most people's purposes that's the most appropriately is better. So McDonald's beats North 44 every time? For families pulling over for a meal, yes, absolutely. Homeless people with $3, of course. For rich men with heart conditions, no, of course not. But who outnumbers whom? You prefer sit-down, that doesn't make sit-down better. So it's purely democratic? If more people believe smoking is good for you, it is good for you? No, because smoking has objective medical consequences. I'm saying that to assume that art must be deep because you like depth is myopic. And, oddly enough for you, completely subjective. So, Mein Kampf was better than, say, Oliver Twist, because it outsold it one year, but only for that year? Even given the aesthetic cheat of your argument, Hitler versus an orphan, and the fact that an argument could be made that Mein Kampf is a deeper work, then yes, that year, Mein Kampf was a more relevant and spoke more to people than Oliver Twist. So it was a better piece of art. You're trying to attach quality to a piece of art, like a dust jacket or on-sale sticker. But for art, quality is in the relevance it has to the purposes of those who consume it. Spencer was a famous philosopher in the 19th century. He's hardly read now. Has the quality of his books faded like the color in an old movie? No. 
because they're just words on a page. The relevance to the audience has decreased. He was a good writer. Now he is not a good writer. Times changed and left him behind. This is a most interesting argument, said Gordon. I am not often accused of subjectivism. I am very logical. Rudy leaned forward. How do you know? Gordon stared at him, a deep shock running through him at the utterly unexpected question. He frowned suddenly, his right eyelid twitched. 